The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Now, I'd like you to open your Bibles this morning to Galatians chapter 5. And I don't mean to surprise you this morning. I'm sure that you thought that Acts was the only book in the Bible. Uh, there is another book, actually more than one book. Uh, and we're looking at Galatians today. Galatians is the first letter that Paul wrote to the New Testament churches. Uh, as we have uh, discussed many times, he was the premier architect of church doctrine. Uh, Christ was the founder of the church. But we notice in the gospel accounts that he hardly gives any specifics about the organization and the work of the church. In fact, the word church appears only twice in the gospel accounts, and both of those times are in Matthew. Paul was peculiar among the apostles. He described himself as one that was born out of due time. And that's a very interesting phrase, I think especially considering what we hear today in this regard. Uh, this this phrase means that he had an abortive birth, uh, actually meaning that it was untimely or inferior. Paul deprecated himself that way because he was not one of the original 12 apostles, but he was uh, called at a different time, and he was called out of persecution of the church. And he always... Well, I don't want to say he always held that self, that thing against him, against himself, because he knew that he was forgiven by Christ. But he doesn't fail to bring that up, a marvelous salvation that he had in Christ because of the way that he was called and what he was called from. Now, another interesting fact about Galatians is that it contains Paul's strongest defense of his apostleship. Very clearly in the first chapter, he said that he did not learn Christ from the apostles, but he learned Christ from his personal interaction, from his calling and his teaching by the risen Christ. Now, my message today is not to give you this history of Galatians, but I've turned here, uh, first of all today, just to point out to you uh, that there was a commentary written on this letter by Martin Luther uh, that has to do with the justification of the sinner. Uh, he focuses on that, and what Martin Luther did was to break the stranglehold, or attempt to break that stranglehold that the Roman Catholic Church held over Western civilization. It's one of the most important commentaries that we have on Scripture. Galatians has been called the Magna Carta of the New Testament, and this is because its main purpose is the freedom from the condemnation of the law that we find in our justifying faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, I'll tell you, that is a wonderfully important topic. But we don't turn to Galatians today to talk about justification. Rather, we're talking about a different doctrine. We're speaking of sanctification uh, and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So today we continue our study of the Holy Spirit And I've switched our text verses from Acts 19 to here in Galatians because this more directly affects what we have to say today. Now, we have been considering questions about the Holy Spirit, and we use the Acts 19 um, as a beginning discussion point because of the confusing things that are said there about the Holy Spirit. Paul met believers in Ephesus 
and he asked them, had they received the Holy Spirit when they believed? And they replied, we haven't heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And best interpreted, I think, we, we don't understand about the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And my purpose in using that Acts 19 chapter was to facilitate more questions and answers about the person of the Holy Spirit and what he does. So we have that confusing answer and we have expanded on it to explain who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. Now today we switch here to the Galatians passage, as I said, because it's more pertinent to this part of our discussion. So if you'll look at Galatians chapter 5, we'll begin in verse number 16. The Apostle Paul, writing to these churches, says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these... Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. I'm going to stop there just a minute as I read that. I commented a week or so ago about how the sexual sins dominate list of the apostles' admonitions to us to follow the Lord. Stop doing these things. And it just seems like adultery, fornication always shows up at the top of the list. And that tells us what terrible sins these, these are. So he says, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, all that has to do with sexual sin, and then idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now he switches to the other side, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit." Now, our subject today is the work of the Holy Spirit in verifying his presence in the life of a believer. Now, as I said last week, your outline might look a little bit strange, probably not to you, because I think just about everybody has been here to hear these messages. But we're in point number three of this outline that we started back in the month of June. And the third point of the outline is the Holy Spirit is God's agent. The Holy Spirit is the person of the Godhead that is active in the world today. When God does his work in the world today, he does it through the administration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've put up here the areas that we've covered thus far. We'll just read through those. We've talked about the Holy Spirit in the ministry of creation, in the ministry of Christ, and the ministry of the canon. And now we're in the fourth part of this outline of the Holy Spirit's work, which is in the ministry of the Christian. And under this topic, the Holy Spirit works in the Christian for regeneration, sanctification, glorification, communication. And then in the last message, we talked about demonstration. Demonstration. This is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work 
in the Christian life. The Holy Spirit will demonstrate his presence. Now, if the Spirit is in you, it won't be a secret to you. And it won't be a secret to others. The Spirit won't let it be. Now, among the ways that the Holy Spirit works through us is the spiritual gifts. Uh, The Holy Spirit gifts the Christian to work in the church. And each of us is given one or more spiritual gifts for the purpose of doing God's work for the edification, that is, for the building up of the body of Christ. None of us is capable of doing this. We can't do it in our own energy, in our own flesh. It's too high and holy a calling. And so we must have the Holy Spirit's power in us to do God's work. And the church has various needs of spiritual employment. The Holy Spirit must gift the believer to do these things. Uh, In the Ephesians passage that we looked at, we saw Paul telling us that God has given pastors and and teachers and evangelists. Those are just a part of the gifts. He goes on further in other places. For instance, in 1 Corinthians to speak about the diversity of the body of Christ. And the church needs diversity in the administration of spiritual gifts just as the human body needs different parts to fulfill different functions. It's a nice passage there, interesting passage in 1 Corinthians 12, where he says, ears are for hearing, he says, noses are for smelling, eyes are for seeing. If the body is only the ears, there is no smelling or seeing. If it is uh, only noses, there is no hearing or seeing. And if it's only eyes, there's no smelling or hearing. It takes all of these. God gives us differently for the efficiency of all the work the church is required to do. And for you, as a Christian in the church, it is your responsibility to fulfill that role that God has given you. You are to work through that role. Now, if you find that there is no spot for you, we would just have to ask, what is wrong? What is wrong? Perhaps the worst case would be that you're not saved. You're just not saved. Perhaps you're being disobedient to the development of your spiritual gift. But I'll give you one other category. Perhaps you're still in the discovery stage. Now, this is the thing. I'm not saying that you will immediately understand what your spiritual gift is. And neither am I saying that your gift is so peculiar and it is so special that you must have a position in the church to do it. You may have the gift of encouragement. You may have a gift of hospitality. You may have a special gift of compassion. It may be to help resolve disputes. Or you could have the gifts of preaching or teaching. That is, that's of course possible. But if you've not found that special place that God has for you in his church, don't sit idly by. Get busy doing something. All of us have been called to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. And I think we can tell, John said, I was afraid I was going to echo uh, when I gave the announcement this morning. And you can see in our church, there's a great need for evangelism. So we can always be busy. All of us can be busy working for the Lord. We don't have to have a title in the church to do that. In last Sunday's forum class, we talked about busy work in the church. The church also needs that. Uh, We may not all have uh, that same spiritual gift. We do have need for physical labor in the church. There is somebody, someone who takes care of those bushes out there, the trees and the lawns. Somebody does that. Somebody 
picks up tables and chairs when we have a, a luncheon as we did last week. Uh, somebody, somebody cleans up the mess. Somebody does the general church cleaning. And there's the person right there about the middle who does that. And she does that for us. Somebody is needed to do these things. And I don't think that God is too much interested in using anyone for outstanding things. I mean, I wouldn't expect that you would think God would call you to be a missionary if you won't do the ordinary mundane things. You don't know how many times that I've seen people walk by a piece of paper laying on the floor of the church. Just look at it, walk by it. You know why they'll walk by it? Because somebody else is going to do that. That's somebody else's job, not mine. But all of us need to remember, this is God's house. We are God's children. It belongs to us too. And so let's take care of what we have. Let's do the work that God has called us to do. But then let's just take care of those ordinary, mundane things. Be a volunteer for those things as well. Our church surely does need this. Now, I I want to add as well that uh, we're all in this together for the support of God's house. It is amazing what God has done for us in these past few years to make sure that we have funds to operate on. I I wouldn't think for a moment that God didn't know exactly what was going to happen uh, during this year that we'd have so many people gone. And he he prepared us for that to some degree, but we can't rest on that. We We have to still be givers, and we must bring our tithes and offerings. And whether you consider that to be, you know, some people don't like the word tithe, so I'll just tell you, whether you consider it to be law giving or consider it to be grace giving, either way... It needs to be done. Uh, the church must operate, and for us to do it in this capacity, maybe we do it in some other, but to do it in this capacity, it takes funds to do that. You know, I think in the past, we, we really didn't need to depend on sacrificial giving. We've kind of gotten out of practice of that because it seemed like the Lord just kept the stuff flowing in, uh, the funds flowing in all of the time. But if there is a time... For sacrificial giving, I believe now is the time. The love of Christ in our hearts works out in obedience as we understand that we are to do God's work based on God's commands. Now, I think those comments are sufficient for from the last message to get us into the sixth point about the agency of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of the Christian. Now, number six I want to talk to you about today is verification. This is very similar to the previous point on demonstration. In fact, I think maybe it's a little bit hard to separate the two. But verification. When the Holy Spirit works are demonstrated, they verify His presence. The Holy Spirit demonstrates His presence by the spiritual gifts that we've spoken of. And He verifies His presence by providing the fruit that comes from all of these spiritual gifts and His working in our hearts. So let's talk about that. We see it in the Galatians passage, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. If a fruit tree is alive and doing well, it yields its fruit in the proper season. It yields its fruit in the proper season. So if you are alive by the Holy Spirit, you will produce the fruit of His presence in your life. Now, in the simplest terms that I could say it to you, The fruit of the Spirit is the production of the likeness of Christ. Looking at this passage in Galatians, he mentions nine different characteristics or fruits, if you want to put them in the plural. And these nine 
are all found in the life of Christ. Now, I want you to note that in our King James Version, it says in verse number 22, fruit, not fruits. Even though he follows that with these nine different fruits, he just calls them fruit. Now, I don't want to make a major point of that, as some do, but I should explain that the absence of any of these characteristics in Christ would yield something less than Christ. And the absence of anyone in your life, anyone in these in your life, would mean that you are not fully Christ-like. So the nine fruits here are considered as a whole. They go together, and thus the singular fruit is used. We can't pick and choose among these and say, well, I'm doing pretty well. I've got six of the nine. That's good enough. I have eight of nine. That's surely good enough, isn't it? But that's not what the apostle says. You want to be nine of nine to be a mature Christian. But at the same time, there's none of us that has these gifts to the extent that Christ had them. We'll not reach perfection until we're glorified in the presence of Christ. Now, let's just take a a couple of these and let's see how they were demonstrated in Christ's life. The list begins with maybe the most important identifier of a Christian, and that is love. Without doubt, that's the number one defining characteristic of a Christian. In the 13th chapter of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Paul spoke of gifts. Well, in, in that place, he spoke of gifts that the, at least the Corinthians thought were ennobling. I mean, they were high on some of these gifts, like the speaking in tongues and prophesying, uh, faith to move mountains, that's a very good thing, philanthropy. He said, Those are great gifts, but those gifts, if they are not motivated by love, then they mean nothing. Everything that Christ did was motivated by love, because love is an inherent attribute of God. Now, certainly, God didn't need any of us. There is no requirement for God to do anything for us. There is no compulsion uh, with uh, for him to give Christ to die for us. I mean, he, he didn't look at us and say, we well, you know there's some pretty good people there. And so I think that I'll love them. I mean, you look around the world today and look what's going on in, in, our, in our country and around the world. You say, why would God ever love a place like this? Uh, th- this place deserves judgment. It deserves hell fire. That's the best that it deserves. But God loved us. Well, where does that love come from? It's not generated from, from our activities. And so it must be something that is in himself. Something arises from in himself. It's the inherent love that God has. There's no other reason for him to do this. When we receive the life of Christ through regeneration, there must be a change in us. There must be, because there is no other kind of life that God gives. He doesn't give a sinful life. He gives a life that is to be a holy life. There is no other life that he gives, but one that is supposed to love. He gives a spiritual life that emulates the life of Christ. And the apostle John wrote that if a person claims Christ, and yet he doesn't have love for Christ and love for God, for love for God, if he, if it's not demonstrated also by love for his fellow man, then he simply does not know Christ. And I find that to be a very simple formula in Scripture to show the presence of Christ. No person can love like Christ unless Christ 
is in him. And a person who has Christ in him has no other kind of love or shouldn't have but the love like Christ. And so we ask then, if that is an identifier of Christ in us, what is the presence of Christ in us? And if you have missed that, you need to go back to sermon number one. Start again seven times ago and, and look and see what we started with. The presence of Christ is the Spirit of Christ, and that Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. Well, we note something else, that the love of Christ, God's love, is not one-dimensional. Christ demonstrated love by tenderness, often by great compassion. He called people to him with a, with a broken heart. He wept over unbelief. Times he was amazingly tender, even though when he was rejected and hurt. I, I think of Jesus on the cross with a thief hanging beside him who had mocked him, made fun of him, what he was going through. But Christ had compassion on him and saved that man's soul right there on the cross. He was amazingly compassionate towards people. But then there were other times when Christ demonstrated his love with great sternness. Not only compassion, but sternness. Remember, he went into the temple. He drove out the money changers. And that was, you say, that's, that's anger. There can't be any love in that. But no, yes, there was love in that because it was love for the holiness and, and standards of God's righteousness that these people needed in order to have eternal life. So it is possible to love by being both compassionate and stern. But some believe that we don't love unless we're just forbearing of every lifestyle, respect, tolerate any lifestyle that anyone wants to live. Now, I'm not here to campaign for my lifestyle. I'm here to campaign for Christ's lifestyle. He's the fullness of righteousness. It was his obedience to the righteousness of the law that saves us. And this is the only criterion upon which God will judge God was stern, Christ was stern in his demand for a life of righteousness, and that righteousness is defined by his law. Now, let me show you for just a moment how that's demonstrated on our level. We find this in Galatians. Since you're already there, turn to the fourth chapter of Galatians. Chapter 4, Paul, Paul was dealing with the Galatians about their foolishness and departing from the gospel of grace, substituting for it a gospel of works, he was stern with them because this was very dangerous doctrine. And quite frankly, he told them, you have been bewitched. You are fooled in turning away from the truth. So they were none too pleased to hear Paul say this. And, and they didn't like the way that he handled them. He told them at the first, at the first, when they first received the gospel, they received his teachings gladly. They loved him. Notice what he says in verses 14 and 15. In my temptation, which was in my flesh, he despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where then is the blessedness you spake of? I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. I mean, they were so glad that Paul brought them the gospel, they would have given anything to repay him. But what happened? What's gone wrong here? They turned on him. They even started to believe that he wasn't an apostle of Christ. Paul had spent two chapters convincing them he was an apostle. Now notice what he says in verse 16. 
Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? He pointed out their sin. Paul was stern with them. He had to get plain with them and just spell it out how they were dead wrong and they were guilty of an egregious violation of their faith in Christ. Now, we would put it this way. He had to get down and dirty with them. Was he their enemy because he was stern and approached their problem this way? Not at all. His sternness was an act of love. He wanted their souls to receive God's blessing. He, he wanted them to have productive lives for Christ, not spend their time wasting away their time when they could be laying up treasures in heaven. He sought their best welfare. He loved them so much that he was stern enough to turn them around. Let me show you how that applies in our church. It's always been my method to try to get you to do the right thing by showing you what the Bible says and then just let the Word of God speak for itself. And I fully expect that those who are true Christians have their faith in Christ, that this will affect them. They will act on truth when they hear it. But sometimes church members are obstinate. The messages bounce off the back wall like a tennis ball hitting it. Sometimes the message just goes over their heads and they act as if I must be talking to somebody else. It goes over their heads and hits the tall guy on the back row and he soaks it all up. Now, I, I'm not saying these things because I would want to hurt anybody. I'm not angry at anybody. I want you to be blessed by God. I don't want you to invite chastisement into your life. I want your soul to prosper. And so, when I need to, I'll have to show you some tough love by directly addressing your sin. And here's the thing. Other godly members of the church may do the same. Without being judgmental, which they shouldn't be, they may come to you and say, you know, you really need to correct this. I've observed what th this thing that's going on and you really need to correct that. You don't turn your ears away from that person and shut them off because you're set in your sin. You don't turn off the messenger in anger. That person may very well have your best, your best welfare in mind in telling you about your sin. Now, look at this passage again in the 12th verse. He says, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. Ye have not injured me at all. Now, it's kind of hard to figure out what Paul's saying here, but he seems to say that your actions do not make or break my ministry. I'm not really hurt because I stand before the Lord just as I always did. Your opinion of me doesn't alter my standing. Your actions hurt you, not me. And this is what I would say to you. I'm not personally offended by what you do. I'm offended for Christ. Your actions will hurt you. And if you get mad at me for telling you the truth, all you do is cut off your nose to spite your face. No good will come of it. So you'll suffer for it, not me. And I realize as I'm talking to this crowd, maybe this does just go over everybody's head because we're all just fine. We're all fine. There's no problems here at all. But I suspect that there's someone 
that maybe deep down in their heart that this very thing is what you need. And that's why I bring it to you this morning. We can't look at each other, all of us look at each other and say, well, that, that's for him, that's for her, that's not for me. No, let's research, dig deep into our own lives to see where this affects us. Now, before I, before I go on, let's take this same thought and let's apply it to the, to the tolerance that is demanded by sinful, disobedient, and harmful lifestyles. The world says, be authentic. Just do you. Realize your own truth. I mean, why should anyone want to step on your truth and say what you do is unacceptable? Well, if we cared nothing at all for souls, if we cared nothing at all about the gospel of Christ, then why would I stand here and and preach and try to turn people away from those lifestyles? I mean, without even, without even bringing the Bible in support to this, I think we could all see that the tolerance that we have in our country today has done some pretty terrible things. That people act like they're insane. Something is just terribly wrong. This world is on a merry-go-round with all the me's at the center. Everything breaks down. And so we end up, we end up with the Old Testament experience of the book of Judges. Everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. Thus we end up with a thousand genders. Um, It's your truth after all. If you're a doorknob, then I have to accept that. You are a doorknob. We can't define, uh, I think uh, John said a moment ago, we can't define what a woman is. Anybody can be a woman. And you think, well, what's all this, this struggle that we've had for all these years? People fussing and fighting about women's living, women's rights. If all the men can be women, what's the point of talking about that? None at all. Everyone does that which is right in his own eyes. And folks, this is a recipe for disaster. We don't even need the Bible to tell us that. Who trusts our educational system today? I, I read the papers every day. You probably do too or listen to news. One of the biggest factors that we have going on right now is the ruination of our educational system. Now, for you that are still in school, some of you are, I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not picking on you personally, but young people are dumb. You're not. Accepting who we have here. Young people are just dumb and it's not their fault. It's not their fault. It's the teacher's fault. It's society's fault. It's the, it's the tolerance that we have. It's that fault. Well, what makes us think that our young people are, are viable and they are capable of leading us into these next decades? If they're being taught by a drag queen, you have no hope. Well, into this mess then steps the Christian who has the spirit of Christ. He sees beyond the satisfaction of self to the satisfaction of Christ. Now Paul addressed this with the Galatians, the Galatians in the third chapter where he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? And our argument would be that if a person thinks that he's good and right by his own methods and by doing his own thing, we would say to that person, at the end of it all, just one question, at the end of all of this, who will judge you? I was reading something the other day that asked, well, how many times did Jesus speak of homosexuality? And they say, none. Can't find a thing that Jesus said on homosexuality. So they try as proof, as tacit proof, that silence on the subject means approval. But what Jesus did say 
was that not one minuscule part of the law would be disregarded or forgotten. It will not pass away. It will all come into judgment. And Jesus used the creation as a model for time immemorial, male and female. It's all going to come in judgment one day. Revelation says the books will be opened. An examination will be made. The record of the life will be there. And there's only one criterion spoke of, and it is the word of God. That's it. We're all going to be judged out of the word of God. And this is what Christ came to do, to fulfill that righteousness, which is the righteousness of the word of God. So when people speak against the tolerance of evil lifestyles, is that harmful or is it helpful? Is it an act of hate? I mean, that's what we're always accused of, isn't isn't it? If you say anything about this, then then you're a hater. You're You're a homophobe, whatever it might be. But... If we take a stand against evil, is that an act of love when we try to steer people away from the inevitable condemnation of their lives? That's not hate. That's putting people on the right path. Is it wrong to steer people into eternal life in Christ? It's not for the personal offense that we preach against these things. Although I do believe it is an offense to society, it's harmful to all of us, not just to the one who does it. But ultimately, it's not a personal offense. It is for offending God for which people will be judged. We love people and we tell them the truth, no matter how much that bursts their personal bubble. Now, do you understand this? The love of Christ, then, has more than one dimension. Some would think the way to love people is accepting what they choose, let them do whatever they want, just be totally forbearing and let everything go. That's not real love. Real love exercises the other side too. Now your children may love to play in the street. Get tired of being confined to the front yard or backyard where that might be. It's so much more fun to skate in the street. But what do you do? You go out there and grab them out of the street. Because you know they will get killed. People really miss this, I think. I think, well, we're being just like Christ. Uh, We are bearing the fruit of the Spirit when they've only caught one dimension of Christ. He is tenderly compassionate, but he is also sternly corrective. It takes both to be like Christ. Now look at the second fruit that's mentioned. I'm not going to talk about all of these. Um, that would take us a really long time, not that they're not good to talk about, but I just want to get you the idea here. Uh, This is an overview. The second one in the list is joy. Verse 22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. What do you think of when you hear the word joy? Like the first thing that would come into our mind is happiness. Happiness. We think of maybe the delights of knowing Christ. That's a joyful thing to think about or or maybe we're thinking oh God does so much for me that I can just skip and hop sing my way all the way through my life and never have a care in the world and they think that's what joy is that's a very nice thought but that's only one aspect of joy as I said this is a multi-dimensional thing here we certainly can be joyful when things go swimmingly along but is that the real proof of the Holy Spirit's presence in us that you can be joyful when everything is just hunky-dory Things are really working out well. Well, the Bible teaches that a Christian 
can be joyful in the worst experiences of his life. Now take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And I want us to notice what Peter says about this great, great part of the scriptures. We'll start here in verse number 3, where Peter begins with some of the most sublime thoughts that he could ask us to think. And, And those thoughts make our hearts soar to the heavens. This is good stuff. We have joy when we read this. Verse number 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Does that make you happy? Does that fill you with joy? I can only say wow to that. I mean, goodness, living hope, incorruptible inheritance, sounds great. You can have joy when you think about heaven and salvation and being kept safe and secure by the power of God. But then, notice how he follows up in verse number 6. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. These are not people just swimmingly going along in life and everything is great. These are people in terrible persecution. Did he expect then their joy would be diminished because of that suffering? Well, nobody thinks that you can be joyful when, when everything that could go wrong goes wrong. James said, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or trials. I mean, when you're living Murphy's Law, whatever could go wrong does go wrong. Can you be joyful? Well, according to Peter, a real Christian... One that has the Holy Spirit in him never loses his joy. Verse 6 again, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom, whom having not seen ye love, and whom thou now ye see him not, yet believing, what? Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Joy unspeakable and full of glory. That, that is the result, he says, of manifold forms or different forms of temptations. The trial of your faith in the fire. That's part of this. The Holy Spirit is verified by expressions of joy in both the good times and the bad. And perhaps we could even argue this way. That there is more joy because of what we go through. Because in those times we are more forced to depend upon God. When you're convinced he is your helper, how can you have greater joy? The Lord is my helper. I shall not fear what man shall do unto me. With God as my hope, nothing stamps out my joy. Let me make another observation. Is it Christ-like to have joy in troubles? Well, let's see if we can find that in the life of Christ. I've already told you he has all the fruit in Galatians 5. Hebrews records for us in Hebrews 12 verse 2. 
Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Isaiah wrote, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Jesus knew what trials and temptations would yield. The worst that he went through was endured with joy, the joy that was set before him. He was joyful in that pain and suffering because he knew it would purchase a people for his name that would glorify him forever. They would have steadfast hope in him. He would always care for them. He would hold them fast. So you can go down these list of the fruits and you'll see Christ in them. You see a multidimensional Christ. And when the Holy Spirit is in you, you will be a multidimensional Christian. When you get Christ, you get all of him. When you get the Spirit, you get all of him. He's, he doesn't short you on these things. He's capable of it all. Now, this brings us then to another thought, and this is the filling of the Spirit. This won't be comprehensive, but let's go to Ephesians chapter 5. Filling of the Spirit will come up later, later in, uh, in our lessons. But in chapter 5, uh, in the 18th verse of Ephesians 5, there's this familiar part which says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now much of the time when this verse is preached, the emphasis on the first part, be not drunk with wine, as if that was the main thought, and that is the antithesis of being filled with the Spirit. Drinking alcohol is bad, Filled with the Spirit is good. That's not what Paul is saying, even though drinking alcohol is bad. Now, I, I, I touched on this in a message back in June, so I'm not going to tackle that again. Paul's main point here is not the use of alcohol. It's a difference in behavior when under the influence. Now, I'm going to add something to my message here. I was just thinking about this this morning. Uh, whenever my wife goes to the doctor, I go to the doctor. They have this long list of questions that they ask. And they would say something like, um, uh, I think the other day I said to her, do you have, you have uh, pain in your calves when you walk? And she said, no. Why do they want to know that? Well, because pain in the calves is a, is the, means that the diabetes is, you know, things are going wrong here. Uh, do you have trouble breathing? Well, she may say yes or no, but the, the ideal thing is to say, no, I don't have trouble breathing. If I have trouble breathing, something's wrong. Well, then, do you, um, do you have headaches? She may say no. He said, "Well, that's a good thing. Uh, are, you, are you are you with her? Especially, they might ask questions to verify that she's you know she hasn't got encephalopathy again. So they may ask her just a lot of simple questions to see if she can answer them. And if she can't, then something's very bad. But I notice they come down this list of questions and they come to do you, do you smoke? No, no, don't smoke. Why do you want to know that? Well, I think you know. They say, do you chew tobacco? No. Well, do you spit? Well, not when I chew, or I do when I chew, but I don't chew tobacco. They ask that question, but then they come to this other one. Do you drink alcohol? And what do they, what do they, what, what do they want to hear out of that? You drink alcohol? Well, you're the happiest person in the world. You're, that's great. We're so glad to hear you drink alcohol. No, they want to find out well, what cause, what problems is the alcohol causing you then? I'm just throwing that in. Um, anyway, Paul means here by this, by this, statement that rather than being out of control or under the influence of something that adversely rules your action, 
Be filled with the Spirit and let Him control you. It's a comparison, not a statement of the virtues and non-virtues of alcohol. Then he goes on in the next verses explaining the filling of the Spirit. Or rather, we might say how, how the filling is verified. Verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now here I'm not discoursing about how to be filled, but rather the verification that you are filled. How do you know if you're a spirit-filled Christian? Well, I think we would start out the way Paul does. What do you like to talk about? What are the subjects of your conversations? According to the 19th verse, a spirit-filled Christian speaks to, they speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What, what does that mean? Well, you come to church and someone says, how are you today? And you say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or you may be a little more dour that day and you may say the wicked shall be cast into hell and all nations that forget God. The wicked are estranged from their womb and go forth as soon as they're born speaking lies. That's a psalm. Is that what Paul means? Not really. Those are psalms for sure. When When he says speaking to others in psalms, he means praising God. God is on your mind. The mercies of God are on your mind. The delight in heavenly things, those are on your mind. You just love to talk about knowing Jesus. Fills up your conversations. You know, I've told you before, I wonder sometimes what visitors think when they come into the church. And it's about this time of the year, football's getting started, and everybody's talking about the 49ers. What's Jimmy G going to do? The 49ers. And what about all that? Well... I think it would be better for people to come into the church and hear conversations going on about, man, it's so good to be at church today. We get an opportunity to, to worship and to praise God, thank Him, give thanks to God for all things. But listen to the conversation of many Christians, and, I, and I'm right here with you on this. We complain. We're grumpy when we get to church sometimes. Somebody cut us off at a light. Didn't like that. You know, I, I, I come up commerce... On, my, on the way here, over there next to a golf course where you have a light there that uh, two lanes come into one. And two people are sitting there at the light, just engines revved, ready to go. Because when that light turns, somebody's going to be first. They're going to get in the line first. And it's just kind of comical to watch that, how they try to beat each other up to be the first, in, you know, the first one to, to get to that, to that place where the traffic merges. Well, you know, I I like to get up early and get going to church. I'd I'd rather be 30 minutes early here than to be one minute late. But my wife has a different constitution. She's not really concerned about such things. If she walks in the door a split second before the hallelujahs start, that's fine with her. So when we were a bit younger and she was healthier and we didn't need to ride together, we would drive separately. Just for this very problem. It just helped stop the arguments on Sunday morning. Are you ready yet? Are you ready yet? Are you ready to go? we got to go. got to go. I've always got to be here early. So we drive two cars. Well, when I do get church to church, I'm happy. I'm ready to go. But I confess, I complain too much. Sometimes we think that God is not good enough to us. And then if something bad happens, we, we wonder, is, is, does all thing, do all things really work together for good? Is that, is that verse true? Well... If you really believe the Bible, you give thanks to God in all things. 
The worst thing that can happen to you on the worst day of your life is better than not knowing Jesus. Now, the third verification of the Spirit's filling is submissiveness. Verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. I think all of us need to stay within God's framework. And this is another thing that's gone so wrong in our society. We're outside of God's framework. So if you go on reading, you see wives are to submit to their husbands. Husbands are to submit to Christ. Children must submit to their parents. Employees must submit to their employers. The church submits to Christ and all submit to God. And if you're out of order in any of that, you won't be a spirit-filled Christian. And some of those things in there you can take up with you can take those up with Paul, not with me. Just deal with him on those issues if you don't like them. And let me throw this in. In other places we are told to submit to the authority of the pastor. You have to be concerned about how much grief you give me because spirit-filled Christians make the pastor's ministry joyous, not grievous. You know, as I think about that, I hadn't thought about this before. Is that, well, I'm not supposed to be act grievously even though you might grieve me because I'm supposed to be joyful in my grief. So I guess that means I'm happy whether you chew me up or not. I mean, if you go to lunch and, and you have a Big Mac and you have me too, you're, you're, you're not a Holy Spirit-filled Christian. If, if you eat Big Macs, you're probably not a Christian at all. I'm not sure. But let me wrap it up for today. I, I gave you the verification of the Spirit. How do you talk? Are you joyful? Are you submissive? And I did skip on this a minute ago. And I said, we'll, we'll come back in more detail. But it is a fair question. How can you be filled? Now, very quickly, let me summarize by quoting William McDonald. How can you be filled with the Holy Spirit? Number one comes from 1 John 1, 5 through 9. Confess and put away your sins. Number two, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Yield yourself completely to the Spirit's control. Number three is Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Galatians 2.20, empty self of self. Now roll us back there if you would, Danielle. Let me read through it again in case you couldn't get it down in time. Confess and put away your sins. Yield yourself completely to the Spirit's control. Number three, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And number four, empty self of self. Of self. I think that last one is the key to the whole list. Empty self of self. Now we're talking about born again believers because nobody else can be filled with the Spirit. Jesus said in, in Matthew sixteen twenty four, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Isn't that the opposite of what we discussed a moment ago? If it is always your truth, your reality your authenticity, and being nothing but self, then you're on the wrong track to get anything from God. If you want the Holy Spirit to fill you, you must fall in line behind Jesus and follow in his footsteps. It's his truth, his authenticity, being selflessly in him. Now the person of the Godhead that regenerates you so that you are enabled to have the power 
to do all of this, who fills you to the brim with the graces of God, is the Holy Spirit. One last thought for you. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, then you need the attitude expressed by J.I. Packer. I, I just happened to read this quote. If we think on the first two requirements, the confession of sin and yielding to the Spirit's control, J.I. Packer expressed that succinctly. He said, the repentance that Christ requires of his people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit to the claims which he may make on their lives. The repentance that Christ requires of his people consists in a settled refusal to set any limit to the claims which he may make on their lives. Started the message just before I began there talking about you are a slave to Christ. You can't set any limit on the demands that he makes upon your life. It's all of Christ and it's none of us. Now if you live that way, you'll soon find that rejecting self and taking Christ will bring joy unspeakable and full of glory. Well, I think I've saturated your brain sufficiently today. I won't keep you longer. In two weeks, we'll come back, and I want to finish up the Spirit's agency in the life of the Christian. Uh, there will be some additional thoughts on, on distinctions that I'd like to bring to you. Uh, I want to talk to you about distinguishing the true work of the Spirit from, from false claims that are said to be the Spirit's work. Now, I don't know. When we first started the Holy Spirit, maybe that's what everybody was thinking of. And that's what they wanted to find out. Uh, what about all these gifts that people say that they have and all the wild things that are said about the Holy Spirit? We're going to talk about that as we t- speak of abusing the Holy Spirit. So there, there is much stuff that goes on that people claim is the Holy Spirit's work. But I, I, I say this, there is more than one spirit in the world. Let's make sure we're following the right spirit. That's a question that needs to be answered because... People are headed in the wrong direction on the Spirit of Christ. So I ask you, is the Spirit verified in you? Christ-likeness. That is a major component of knowing that you are saved and knowing that the Holy Spirit is in you. Blessed be God for the Spirit of Christ working Christ in us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now and... We do thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for salvation that we have in Christ and and that you do want us to be assured that we know you. You do want us to know that we have eternal life abiding in us. And you've given us the scriptures to help us to learn this. And I just ask, Lord, that each of us would do what your word says to examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Pray for people here today. I think... Probably everyone here professes to know you as Savior, but we do need to seek that verification. We do need to look at the fruit that's going on or coming forth from our lives. It must be the right fruit, not a withered fruit, not a fruit that needs to be destroyed, but works for you that are lasting and come, come with rewards in the everlasting kingdom of God. Bless us today, Lord. We thank you for the privilege of speaking to your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 
or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.